Welcome to Come and Reason with Christian psychiatrist and author Dr. Tim Jennings. Together we will reason through complex issues to find evidence-based answers that harmonize scripture, science, and our life experiences. I'm your Come and Reason host, Charles Mills. This program is sponsored by Come and Reason Ministries. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. On our last program, Dr. Jennings read to us from his book, Could It Be This Simple? The chapter was entitled Forgiveness, and the good doctor revealed a number of myths that many people believe concerning that topic. Myth number one, forgiveness comes after the offending individual says they are sorry. Myth number two, God's forgiveness equals salvation. Myth three, forgiving someone means that what that person did was okay. And myth number four, forgiveness leads to greater vulnerability. Remember, these are myths. They don't paint a true picture of that all-important act. If you haven't heard that program, I invite you to do so on the ComeAndReason.com website. It's called Forgiveness Part 1. Well, today, we pick up right where we left off with Forgiveness Part 2. Here's Dr. Jennings. Myth number five. Forgiveness means restored trust. Forgiving someone does not change that person. Trust is based on the trustworthiness of the individual. Forgiveness is a change of heart attitude for the victim, not the assailant, and results in the injured person's relinquishing any demand for vengeance. In no way, however, does it restore trust. Not until the offending parties demonstrate that they are trustworthy can trust be reestablished. Myth number six. Forgiveness means forgetting. This one is a little tricky because, in a certain sense, forgiveness does mean forgetting. However, such forgetting does not involve memory erasure. Can you remember a time that one of your children told you a fib and you had to discipline the child? Did they repent and ask forgiveness? And did you forgive them? Now that forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation have occurred, do you think, here comes that little liar of mine, the next time you see your child come running towards you. Of course not. When reconciliation occurs, the transgression is forgotten as far as the relationship is concerned, because it is no longer relevant to the relationship. But is memory erased? Are the facts of what took place lost from history? No. This type of forgetting can safely occur only after reconciliation. To forget before the person who has offended has repented would open oneself up to unnecessary risk. This myth also stems from misunderstandings about how God handles situations. In the Bible, God states that if we repent, He will remember our sins no more. See Jeremiah 31, 34, Hebrews 8, 12, and 10, 17. Many well-meaning people have taken such passages to indicate that those in heaven have no memory of the sins and mistakes of the righteous, that the recorded sins of the righteous have been erased and vanished from recollection. Let's use our reason to explore this possibility and see if it withstands scrutiny. We have already mentioned David's sin with Bathsheba, that he repented and was forgiven. Yet we still have a record of it to read. If it has been erased from the memory in heaven... Does that mean that when we are reading our Bibles here on earth, God does not allow our guardian angels to look over our shoulders? Consider the time that David, Bathsheba, and Uriah meet in heaven, and Solomon joins them. 
Will David and Bathsheba know that Solomon is their son? Will Uriah remember that Bathsheba was his wife? Will Uriah have any questions for David and Bathsheba? Will any of them have memories of their lives on earth? Many people have a problem with retaining our memories in heaven because they are afraid of how others will treat them because of what they did on earth. They don't believe that anyone could love them and be kind to them if others know of their scarlet past. Let's look at some evidence from Scripture. Consider the woman caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. We all recognize that Jesus didn't condemn her, and we can take courage in knowing that he won't condemn us either. But consider those who brought the woman to Jesus. His enemies, they had been plotting his death and eventually crucified him. Now they brought the woman in an attempt to trap him. If Christ would have encouraged those gathered to stone the adulterous woman, they would have accused him before the Romans as usurping Roman authority because only the Roman government could sentence someone to death. Or had he urged the woman's release, they would have presented him before the people as undermining the law of Moses. Jesus recognized that they had set up the situation to entrap him. He knew that they were his enemies. He knew their secret sins also. Consequently, he could have chosen to expose their sins and then urge the crowd to turn against them. Instead, he followed a much different path, one that the religious leaders had not anticipated. Bending down, he began to trace their various sins on the paving stones of the temple court, without names. Each person observed his own shortcoming, felt convicted, turned, and left. Isn't it amazing that Jesus protected the reputations of even his enemies? If God guards their reputations, how much more will he those of his friends? Here we have concrete evidence that God demonstrated at great expense to himself how he operates his universe. In heaven, memory will continue, but no one will use the information in destructive ways. Our recollections of even tragic events will serve to enhance further our love and appreciation for God and his methods. Such remembering will protect the universe from rebellion ever arising again. What about Judas? Jesus knew that the disciple planned to betray him, but he didn't expose him to the disciples. In fact, when Judas left the upper room on his way to the temple officials, the other disciples thought he was going to buy needed items or minister to the poor. With God, there is no forgetting of history of our lives. But because we have been healed and our hearts are in harmony with his, as far as the relationship is concerned, it is forgotten. God doesn't bring it up. It is no longer an issue. Consider what would happen if your child underwent months of painful and miserable treatments for leukemia. It has depressed the child's immune system, and he or she is weak and frequently nauseated. His or her hair falls out. Would you treat this child differently from your other children? Would you provide greater care, take greater precautions, and seek greater involvement? But if the leukemia is in complete and total remission, and your child is well, would you still surround the child with all the restrictions and special precautions? And would you ever forget the history of your child's brush with death? Of course not. But as far as how the child is treated, after being eliminated, the leukemia is forgotten. It no longer matters, and no precautions are needed. This is how it is with God and us. After we are healed, we no longer need the special precautions. But we still remember the history of our illness, and it adds to our appreciation of God for the special efforts He devoted to us. Myth number seven. 
Forgiving means that the guilty person gets away with it. The final and perhaps the most difficult myth to recognize and resolve is that forgiving someone means that they escape any responsibility or consequences for what they have done. This myth is the most difficult for my patients to recognize. It involves misconceptions about God, the problem with sin, and his solution for it. In reality, no one ever gets away with sin because, as we have repeatedly seen, we actually damage ourselves when we sin. With every unhealthy act, and even with every unhealthy thought that we cherish, we make ourselves increasingly hard-hearted, selfish, and evil. Some people fail to see that the problem with sin is that it damages the sinner. Instead, they believe that someone who sins must suffer an imposed penalty. When no penalty exists, they have difficulty forgiving because it seems as if no one is holding the sinner accountable. The correct understanding of sin, however, allows for the recognition that no one ever gets away with it. Rather, those who sin slowly destroy themselves. Tony was distressed, angry, and irritable. Her anger was the result of conflict with a co-worker who frequently spent hours on the phone talking to family and friends and did very little work. Although her co-worker's negligence did not place more work upon Tony, she became increasingly preoccupied with the perceived injustice. It just isn't fair. I work hard and don't get to talk on the phone all day. Tony was disturbed because she didn't understand the nature of sin. To help her deal with the situation, I asked her to consider the following scenario. If she agreed to wash someone's car for $50, accepted the $50, but didn't wash the car, how would she feel? Awful, like a thief, Tony immediately answered. She recognized that her self-esteem and self-worth would fall and shame, guilt, depression, and anxiety would increase. Next, I asked how she would feel if she agreed to perform certain duties for a prescribed wage, accepted the pay, but didn't perform her duties. When Tony didn't seem to make the connection, I posed this question. If her husband didn't brush his teeth, would she think he was getting a better deal? She realized that such a thing was not possible because his teeth would eventually decay. That's the point. The co-worker who cheated the boss was decaying something far more valuable than teeth. She was destroying her soul. The point became obvious to Tony. She was able to see that her co-worker was not getting a better deal, but in fact was damaging herself. Misunderstandings about God and his forgiveness have circulated for centuries. George MacDonald, the famous 19th century theologian, confronted these very same issues. The Lord never came to deliver men from the consequences of their sins while those sins yet remain. Yet feeling nothing of the dread hatefulness of their sin, men have constantly taken this word that the Lord came to deliver us from our sins to mean that he came to save them from the punishment of their sins. This idea has terribly corrupted the preaching of the gospel. The message of the good news has not been truly communicated. Unable to believe in the forgiveness of the Father in heaven, imagining him not at liberty to forgive or incapable of forgiving forthright, not really believing him God who is fully our Savior, but a God bound either in his own nature or by a law above him and compulsory upon him, to exact some recompense or satisfaction for sin, a multitude of religious teachers have taught their fellow men that Jesus came to bear our punishment and save us from hell but in that they have misrepresented his true mission. 
The issue that God is trying to accomplish in our lives is the actual healing and transformation of our hearts and minds here and now. It involves much more than simple forgiveness. As we learn how to forgive others, we cooperate with God for the healing of our minds. If this is still a little confusing, consider the case of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, who murdered numerous people, dismembered their bodies, and put them in his refrigerator. Although Mr. Dahmer is deceased, let's assume that he is still alive and that the president forgives, pardons, and sets him free. Would you want Jeffrey Dahmer as your next-door neighbor? Why not? After all, he would be forgiven. But would he be changed? Would he be safe to live next door to? Or would he have so twisted himself that he is unsafe for you to accept as a neighbor? Here is the ultimate question in the problem with sin. Sin has damaged us. And only those who have cooperated with God for the restoration of his image within will be saved. The Bible speaks of this transformation in a variety of ways, as being recreated in the inner person, as having the mind of Christ, as having the law written on our hearts and minds, as walking by the Spirit and not the flesh, as having circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, as being a new creation and as being reborn. All of the metaphors point to the same thing, being changed, healed, restored, having the damage of sin healed, having selfishness replaced with the law of love and liberty, having an ennobled reason and pure conscience directing a stable will in the establishment and maintenance of self-control, being one with God in method, principle, and motive, and operating from the law of love and liberty. Forgiving others is one of the steps we take in cooperating with Him for our own healing and transformation. Dr. Timothy Jennings reading from his book, Could It Be This Simple? A Biblical Model for Healing the Mind. Until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. Tim Jennings wishing you God's presence in your life. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for spending time with us today. To continue the journey, I urge you to visit comeandreason.com. Here you'll find many excellent resources to help you gain a deeper understanding of the God we all love and serve. That's at comeandreason.com. This is Charles Mills, along with Dr. Tim Jennings, inviting you to join us the next time we come and reason together. Together.